0: Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I am your host Josiah, and unfortunately, on today's episode, I will be your only host. Byron is unfortunately dealing with some family emergencies currently. We record this episode a couple days before we release, so so today is actually a Tuesday, um, and this this episode will air the following Monday. But this past weekend, Byron's grandfather passed away. And so our thoughts and prayers are with his family. And he is actually in the process of traveling to the memorial service location, which is the next state over. So he he lives in Arizona and he's going to California. So for the first time ever, I am alone on this podcast and I don't have my best friend slash brother with me because his family is mourning a loss and. going to mourn with him but he told us that we should continue with this episode today that we can remember him and in his absence continue to to talk about these important things um, especially when stuff like this happens in life Um, faith and culture intersect a lot and these are important conversations to have so uh just a shout out to byron our thoughts and prayers are with you um this this episode will be a little bit different um as a result of that but we're going to continue having these conversations we have a great guest but before We hear from that guest, we're going to get the business of sponsorship out of the way and you won't get to hear Byron make fun of us for being sellouts. So with that, here's a word from our sponsor. Care about your online privacy? Want to browse knowing your information is secure? Are you a millennial who camps out in coffee shops and uses Wi-Fi all day? Then you need to check out NordVPN. You can try them out risk-free for 30 days with a money-back guarantee. After that, you can enjoy safe browsing on all of your devices starting as low as $2.99 a month. You can sign up today by clicking the link in the description below and learn all that NordVPN can offer you for keeping your identity safe online. All right, sponsorship out of the way, flying solo, but not actually really alone because on the podcast today, like all the podcasts we have had, we have another awesome millennial who has still continued to participate in the church alicia welcome to the show
1: hey josiah thanks so much for having me
0: thanks for being on the show and even though we kind of threw an audible at you last second thanks for continuing to to plow ahead and be willing to be a part of these conversations even though we had to make some last second adjustments sorry about that
1: yeah, I am so excited to be here. Bummed to not get to know Byron a
0: little bit and hear some of his thoughts
1: as we have some important conversations, but stoked to be a part of this.
0: Awesome. So like like always with all of our guests, give us your, if you want to give us your full name, I already said you're Alicia, full name, age, and where you're at.
1: Yeah. Hey, I'm Alicia McClintick. Um, I'm 29 years old, staring 30 in the face, as somebody told oh. me. I know, right? Uh, harsh, um, <laughs> but but I'm excited about it. It's gonna be it's gonna be a big year, and I've got some plans to like really celebrate. Well, um, yeah. Anyway, 29, solidly a millennial, yes. definitely like within within the millennial age bracket,
0: which is what this show's about.
1: Ta-da! <laughs> um, also, I am a pastor in Northern California in the. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area. My church is on the east side of the bay in a city called Hayward. Um, and I've been there just a little bit more than a year.
0: Awesome. So, so before we continue, where you obviously, you know what's coming. We're going to, we're going to play some games with you, see how millennial you really are. <laughs> I have, I have a fun story. And I don't know if you've actually experienced this yet. Um, so I'm curious because. When I was 29 and about to turn 30, I was also a lead pastor and I had been a lead pastor for about a year. And there was this joke like, oh, you're still 29 or oh, you're 29. And they just kept saying this over and over again. And it's like, I don't get it. What? What's the joke? I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. And then I guess that's the perpetual age for people. people pretend to be, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, 29 or 39, the you're you're always just under 30 or just under 40 is I think the the perennial joke that's always going around but I don't know why I would want to lie about my age like I'm excited to I'm excited to be where I am if that makes any sense
0: yeah well I mean live in the moment and just kind of you know, accept that that's how it is. But I seriously, it went right over my head. Literally, I was talking about it. I think my birthday fell on a Sunday or something, and the whole congregation's just giving me grief. And I just <laughs> literally felt so silly because I was sitting there. I, I just didn't get it. I'm like, what's the joke here? And then someone told me, like, oh, ha 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 ha. No, I'm actually 30 now, guys. I'm not going to be 29 forever. I'm okay with <laughs> being 30. There was a moment, though, where, where I had to kind of mourn the loss of that uh first digit that that 2 it turned into a 3 there was kind of some i had to pause for a minute and be like oh man i'm really adulting
1: <laughs> yes for some reason 30 is really adulting
0: right isn't that the expectation though is once you get to 30 you're really adulting now.
1: yeah i don't know apparently 33 is sort of a big deal as well it's like the jesus age you know as some oh, people say snap. like like jesus was killed when he was 33. And then I mean you're in in the same league as like Beyonce and Justin Timberlake <laughs> and pe- people who have done like epic things by the time they were 33. Like what uh, are you doing with your life?
0: Oh, snap. <laughs> well, thanks for putting that in my brain now. Now I got to think about that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, well, moving on, um you're 29, you're a millennial, you're right in the thick of it and we're going to see just how millennial you are with the game how millennial are you
1: oh yikes
0: so with Byron's recommendation last episode we do have theme music so here's a split second break to hear our introduction to this theme music all right are you ready to play
1: yes let's do it
0: okay so as you are aware we ask you very stereotypical questions. We're not intending to insult you by any means, but these are just generic stereotypes that we have found either in news headlines, we've experienced personally, or just generally understood stereotypical perceptions. And the reason that we do any of this stuff is to basically try to really confront those stereotypes and maybe function in a different way uh, intergenerationally. With that being said, it's also for funsies, so I'm definitely going to try to get you with some of these. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. Question number one, Alicia. Do you live at home with your parents or in your grandmother's basement?
1: I do not. I do not. Uh, I live um, basically in a dorm, actually. I live with quite a lot of roommates because that's how you afford rent in the Bay Area. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, we're in a a three-bedroom, two-bath house and they're used to be seven of us oh wow i know i know two per small room and then three in the in the master
0: so obviously obviously somehow that would be spun as you know you you are ruining living in the bay area like that's your fault for doing that how could you do that (laughs) so obviously well well, actually we're gonna get i'm not gonna say that yet because we're we have some questions coming your way still so all right next question all right how narcissistic are you like on, a, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, how narcissistic would you say you are? You know,
1: um, pretty not narcissistic. <laughs> um, uh, I don't, I don't know if you're, um, if you're familiar with the Enneagram. This is maybe one of the things that shows how millennial I am. That I like <laughs> care about the Enneagram. Um, but on the on the Enneagram, my number type is is actually really um, not self-attentive. Like a big part of our our work toward growth is like learning to pay attention to what we need and what we want and learning to articulate that in the world. So,
0: Well, uh, shoot, I guess guess the news media got that one wrong. I guess you're not a (laughs) narcissist. I don't know. I, I guess I'll have to trust you on that one.
1: Maybe, maybe.
0: All right, next question. What did you do to win your last participation trophy?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, to be honest, I don't think I have any participation trophies, but I did get an award for perfect attendance in high school.
0: Well, shoot, that, you actually did something, though.
1: Oh, yeah. But what sort of a lame award is that? Like, you showed up
0: <laughs> to do the know.
1: thing. You showed up to do the thing that everyone has to do. Good well, for you.
0: <laughs> well, to to be fair, I never won that award. So I guess, it, I mean, it was sort of a big deal. I don't, I, <laughs> uh, it seems, seems kind of insurmountable to me. That seems mildly difficult. No, oh, particip- <laughs> participation trophy, it's literally you just showed up. You didn't have to do anything. So... I don't know. I oh. guess that's close. That's close.
1: Yeah, but it feels it feels like in the same in the same bracket, right? It's yeah. it's not like most improved or like like it's not for anything other than literally I
0: showed up. You were there. <laughs> you were there. It wasn't a first place. Like you didn't win first place for attendance. I guess so. I guess it's close. It's close to a participation trophy. <laughs> All right, next question. This one, I'm actually, I I'm hoping. I'm hoping I get you on this one. How many avocados do you currently have in your personal stash? Oh, uh,
1: definitely five. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, I think it, I, I got six just the other day and ate one yesterday. So down to five.
0: <laughs> I mean, depending on what my children are doing at this very moment, we have either three or four in our personal stash. But... So do you eat it on toast? I mean, be, be honest. Do you put it on toast? That's the, that's the big stereotype.
1: Oh, for sure. But uh actually I eat quite a lot of guacamole.
0: Oh, okay. That's my preferred avocado form, I guess.
1: Yeah. Or vegetables on the side, as some might say.
0: <laughs> yes. I think that's that, that stereotypes <laughs> like one of the few that I'm totally fine with. Avocados are real good. And yeah. Byron does not agree. I don't know if you've heard the episode where he just spoke vehemently out against avocados, but I was personally offended.
1: Oh, well. Yes, he probably owes you an apology then.
0: <laughs> I know. We didn't do the apology segment because I had to be serious. <laughs> we'll apologize for something, I'm sure, later on in the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. Do you spend more on coffee than retirement?
1: Oh, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, curr- I currently don't actually even have a retirement account. and That's for, that's for some other – they're like other – reasons there um I I serve a really poor community and so uh but my my pastoral stipend is really small and so <laughs> we're we're living um in in so many ways paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. uh so so there's there there's that um and I've been a grad student for a really long time so paying off student loans uh carries a lot more weight than saving for retirement at, at the moment but Yeah, I'm also a regular coffee drinker. So I'm certainly spending more money on coffee than on retirement right now.
0: (laughs) I haven't crunched the numbers, but I'd be really I don't want to. I guess I'll just say that I don't want to crunch the numbers. I don't want to know.
1: Yeah, it's it's not easy to be spending more on coffee than on retirement if you're not saving for retirement at all. So I'll put that out into the world. I guess that's fair. <laughs>
0: like five bucks a month on coffee is more than you're putting towards retirement, basically. So I know.
1: I know. That, that's like, that's one of the goals for this year for turning 30, getting the retirement account situated.
0: We So that's hilarious that you say that because, and I should have thought about this when you're talking about the 33 thing me and my wife had this goal and it was this fun little you know rhyme debt free by 33 it's not going to happen oh. it's not going to happen now but there's there's other reasons for that namely a fourth child on the way but we might pull it off by like 34 or 35 which i guess it just doesn't have the same ring to it debt free by 35 it's just there's not any excitement or pep that goes with that
1: yeah yeah that's fair but i mean Shooting for a good goal, debt-free by 33.
0: That was what we were shooting for. We we may just miss it, but we were even joking, like, you know, the day before she turns 34, she's a little older, we would still count that. Like, the day before her birthday, it's still debt-free by 33, we did it.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: But... For sure. I don't see that happening now.
1: I feel like you could even tack on a few extra months, as long as you're below 33 and a half, you can round down. Yeah. I feel like that's appropriate.
0: Absolutely. So that we'll, we'll fudge it a little bit. It'll still take we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of money, speaking of spending, do you know how to write a physical check?
1: I do. I do. I I write actually kind of a lot of checks. What? I know. Isn't that strange? For what? Um, <laughs> um let's see. I wrote a lot of checks for rent. Um and uh, I've paid a handful of bills with checks. Um, and then also the school situation. It's really, like, one of the only secure ways to, like, send money. In the, so. in the mail. I know. Isn't that sad? Um, but uh, this is actually another good plug. Yeah. Um, just recently, I wrote a check to Nazarene Theological Seminary for the Mentoring for Ministry program, which we're both a part of. Which is where um, we
0: even met to begin with, right?
1: Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. I know we were both at Point Loma, but I don't think we were there at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think I graduated either. I was a senior while you were, uh, what, maybe a freshman? Did I graduate before you a couple of years or so?
1: I think so. Something like that.
0: I don't know. What, anyway. I graduated in 2009.
1: Uh, yes. I graduated in 2011.
0: So, uh, I guess I may have been a senior while you were a freshman then, possibly?
1: Probably. Something like that. All
0: right. Someone can, we can get our interns on that and fact check that. (laughs) Get right back to that. But I just wrote a physical check today, too. It's my weekly one. And I confessed last week that I still have to sit there and like, how do you do this again? And I kid you not. After we posted that episode um, with with our mutual friend, Sophie, you know, Sophie, I got a I got a text with a screenshot of directions for how to write a check. Like (laughs) someone sent me that like, thank you to our listeners for uh, helping teach me how to not be a stereotypical millennial. I really appreciate it. (laughs) That's so funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are some other places that still like request a check, like a copay at the doctor's office or um, yeah, like. Like some of those things.
0: Yeah, it's still, I'm, I don't, I mean, I would have to say personally, I find it outdated, but it's also the only way to do it with some, you know, systems. That's just the only way it's going to work. So
1: yeah, I actually also find that, that we use a lot of checks in the church world, um, just for some various like financial reasons. Like our church doesn't have a credit card. So really the only way to like, like pay for things is to request an invoice and write a check those kinds of things absolutely
0: i mean that's what we did for a long time here too and then they eventually thought it might be easier for me to have a card but (laughs) so continuing with the subject of money next question is how are you paying off all your student debt given the fact that you obviously have a very terrible work ethic being a millennial (laughs) being a lazy millennial oh my
1: gosh yeah student debt is crippling actually um you know, just a little bit at a time, paying it off here here as we go. Um, my parents were actually really thoughtful in um, putting away some savings bonds for education. So those will mature in a couple years and I'll be able to pay off some student debt that way. And then actually our denomination is offering some interesting opportunities for debt relief. Um, there's something called the Compass Initiative. I'm, I'm um,
0: three months away from graduating. I'm so excited.
1: Oh, congratulations. I'm, yeah, just starting my application because I think it seems really thoughtful and helpful. And and without some, like, intentional help to pay off a pretty substantial amount of student debt, like, I'll just be in debt for literally ever. <laughs> I
0: know. It's so terrible. There's a figure I just read. It was uh, a couple days ago, I think. They, the estimate is that our generation as a whole carries about $1 trillion in student debt. Just our generation as a whole.
1: Yeah. Gosh, good Lord have mercy.
0: Seriously, the good thing we have such terrible work ethics and no one will hire us. So,
1: <laughs> good thing we needed to go into debt to get our degrees in the first place I know. so that somebody would hire us. Oh,
0: the Catch 22 drives me nuts. Oh, my goodness.
1: I know. I know. So, well, the, the good news is I have heard some really great things about. about Uh, organizations working toward debt relief especially for for the generation that's graduating with with an insurmountable amount of student
0: debt seriously the the interest can accrue faster Mm. than you can pay it off sometimes it's ridiculous
1: yeah it's nuts
0: so continuing on with this conversation of your terrible work ethic (laughs) um, we're gonna also branch out to your personal life you you obviously don't cook Um, I don't know if you've heard we ruin stoves like the (laughs) stove the stove industry is mad at us so how (laughs) since you're paying off student debt I guess the question I have for you is how can you afford to eat out all the time if you're not cooking at home
1: (laughs) I actually um I actually love to cook I'm a regular subscriber to several cooking blogs I cook from a cookbook uh I make it a goal to cook at least one like really good meal per week
0: that's awesome. I, I rem- I asked this question specifically of you because I remember nerding out over trying to make sourdough like you and I were talking <laughs> about, oh, yes. I use this cast iron, I use this Dutch oven thing and I try to <laughs> do the starter and the starter died and blah, blah, blah. And then watching one of our mentors look at us and kind of in, in surprise, like, whoa, you guys do things like that? That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an amateur baker. I, yeah, I bake, I bake bread. I haven't been able successfully to keep a sourdough alive. Um, <laughs> But but yeah, I, I I like to bake bread. I I love cooking. I love being able to share a meal as well, especially since I live with a lot of folks. It's really great to be able to gather around the table.
0: Absolutely. I just – we. I don't even have the – so I'll spend like an hour or two making a thing. The most recent thing I did was bagel balls. So they're just – I think they have a version of this at, at Starbucks. And I stole the idea from somewhere else and then Starbucks stole it. But it's basically bagel dough. <laughs> bagel dough with uh, with cream cheese in the center and you bake it and it's essentially like a bagel ball with cream cheese already loaded inside and it's just amazing Um, that
1: sounds amazing yeah
0: wow yeah and you top it with your toppings and i'll I'll send you the recipe if you want (laughs) (laughs) i'm into it but i i kid you not i made one day i think i counted like 50 of these bagel balls and they were all done like we ate them all in a day. It was ridiculous. Cause three kids and me and my wife. And then they're just snacky and they're not I mean, they're not huge, but that was too much. We should not have eaten that much in one day. But they were just like this <laughs> addictive, you couldn't stop popping them. And we ate it all. So I spent all this time and they were gone immediately. And I was kind of in my mind I had visions of oh, this is breakfast for the whole family for the whole week and this is gonna be so <laughs> nice and helpful, and then they're done. I went back and saw on the counter where they were on the cooling rack, and they're just gone. Like, oh, my lanta.
1: Oh, my lanta. Um, just this week, I, I made my own granola bars for breakfast. And similarly, they were so delicious that they were gone in, like, two days.
0: Exactly. It's the, it's the downside to actually doing it successfully. Then everyone wants to eat it immediately.
1: Right, right, which I, I received the compliment, but also next time we'll ration them out a little bit more.
0: And just stash them. That's what – I just have to hide them from <laughs> – I like put them up high for my children, but now my oldest is getting taller, and he knows how to, like, get a thing. Like, he'll get one of the bar stools, and he can reach everything now, and it's just – it's a whole thing. But, yeah, you literally have to – you have adults that are coming after your stuff, so you have to be next level, like, hiding it and rationing it, so <laughs> –
1: Oh, we, I still can't get over the stove companies are mad at us.
0: I mean, so yeah, the the stereotype is is that we just don't cook anymore and we don't need stoves, I guess.
1: Is it because we use the instant pot?
0: Maybe, but I, so it was a business insider article, if I remember right, I don't have it in front of me, but it was basically that Uber Eats is going crazy, especially in big cities where all the millennials live, because that's all millennials do is order out. Oh that's, oh that's a stereotype and so essentially the forecast doesn't look great for stove manufacturers given that <laughs> presently we are the biggest generation so we're also the the most targeted for ads and for marketing and so like the forecasts don't look great we're not going to be buying new stoves anytime soon because uber eats that was basically the gist of the article <laughs> so It was like cool yeah throw more shade at us that's great we love it okay <laughs> so speaking of throwing shade Here's some more. Ready?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Question number nine, we We're nine of 10. So don't worry, I'm only gonna throw two more shades at you. And this is again, this one particularly is a brand new article that I was reading. And I, I saw the headline, I just had to take the headline because, you know, I read the article, but most people don't always read the article. So I'm just going to extrapolate my own meaning from this article. Um, as a young, empowered woman, why do you feel the need to attack classic masculinity in this country, Alicia? Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How loaded can I make that, right? Yeah. <clears throat>
1: well, thank you for recognizing that I am an empowered woman. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for also recognizing that classic masculinity probably needs some um some critiques and some some conversations. Um I I would say I don't feel the need to necessarily attack anything, but I do feel the need to interrogate like where some of these ideas come from um, and what, what damage they might be doing unintentionally. I think the phrase that we're seeing a lot lately and I mean more and more, uh, it's not a new phrase, but we're seeing it a lot lately is the phrase toxic max- masculinity yeah. rather than, um, Kind of classic masculinity, yeah. Um, but I, I do think that when it comes to to sexism, some really rigid gender norms end up hurting both men and women in significant ways. And I think we need to do some honest work to look at those norms and then to say like, what's helpful, what's not helpful, how do we move forward in a holistic and healthy way?
0: Which is pretty much what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. For the rest of this podcast if I'm not mistaken
1: I do have some stuff to say about that
0: (laughs) well I think we're gonna let's pause and definitely dive in deeper because I have one last fun question about you just being so basically this is the last question about how millennial are you Shoot. With the given trend and how you just generally ruin all the good things. So, like, you're ruining retirement because you like coffee so much. You ruin check writing, even though you actually write checks. But just <laughs> giving into the stereotype, you ruin checks. You also have a terrible work ethic, so you've ruined just jobs, period. Um, you're ruining masculinity. Simply, oh By the way, the article is basically, like, uh, millennial women have the right to be angry. And it was just, you know, it would, there was nothing in it that was necessarily super um divisive in my opinion but i could just see reading that headline Ah, she's just mad because blah 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 (laughs) just just by existing just by being you know an empowered young woman you obviously hate oh um, men is basically the the take that's what the headline was saying right like that's that's just the stereotype like how helpful that's great so ruining just masculinity in general in your own like if you're this is your moment to confess basically given the trend on how you ruin all these good things. I'm going to put good with air quotes. Um, what would you say is the most recent thing you ruined if you were willing to confess?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, um, let's see. Well, I think along, along with some other millennials were in the process of ruining or killing, uh, uh, disposable plastics, like plastic silverware and, um, plastic cups and all of that stuff. Um, I've been pretty regularly bringing my own silver, my own silverware, my own uh, cloth napkin, my own containers, a water bottle, a coffee mug, all of those things with me to use like reusable and sustainable things rather than accepting um, like single use plastic items. So I hope I'm
0: responsible for for killing plastic <laughs> silverware so next
1: that would be great the next episode or, or styrofoam i hope i'm responsible for killing styrofoam
0: so the next episode is going to be why have millennials ruined plastic so that'll just be the generic next one for <laughs> like you ruined plastic so thank you for giving a question for us to use on the next episode <laughs> so okay we got through it so give me your take how how millennial do you feel like you are
1: Gosh, I mean, given given that segment, I, I feel like like sort of split down the middle, like medium millennial.
0: Right. I mean, given all the stereotypes, I don't know if we've had too many people. I mean, I think all of our guests have had yes and no's. And we don't necessarily um I don't tally it, you know, every time we're doing it, but every single one of our guests has had a has had a, you know, some for and some against them. But some of those yeah. some of those I feel like they're on point. And it's not necessarily a negative of people always spin a negative. Like, <laughs> I know very few millennials that don't like avocados. I don't know what that's about. That's true. That's true. I, don't I mean, Byron's the only one, honestly, that I know. And then we, no, we had a guest that doesn't like avocados. Which guest was it? Um, oh, forgetting now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love avocados. I love coffee. I'm a really regular coffee shopper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I'm definitely spending more on coffee than on retirement. So that's true.
0: Um, but but the the argument I mean I guess the to play devil's advocate I know plenty of boomers that love coffee and avocados too so I I don't know
1: f- you know fair enough fair enough perhaps I, that's
0: because I, I grew up in the southwest where avocados were readily available I don't know
1: that's true I'm also born and raised in California so
0: yeah I guess yeah I mean we had Hunter and he was talking about being from Arkansas in the Midwest wherever the Midwest is I don't I still don't. <laughs> I'm not convinced that there's anything you can really say to prove that the Midwest even exists. I mean, it's just not even real to me because Southwest <laughs> kid living in the Northwest were those are regions that are just really directions, not like a culture thing. But <laughs> even there, he said he had, I think he at least had avocados or he had put it on toast or something like that. So there's something about the toast part that must be super millennial, right? Seriously. Well, I don't know. You take take from that what you will. Part of the whole point of that, obviously, is to to try to remind ourselves that when we label things, that's what they are. When we just say, oh, you're a millennial, then it's super easy to, to write that person off. And as millennials, it's really easy to just write off the boomers and say, or, oh, you know, Gen X or the, the greatest generation ever. It's really easy to just write them off and stereotype them and just basically be dismissive of an entire group of people. But within us, uh, within our generations, specifically since we're the biggest I think it's important for us to be reminded that maybe there are some stereotypes. And the only reason that that might exist is because we were all born in the same window of time as right. That's the only thing that is our defining quality is that we were born in the same period of time. So obviously we're going to have some similar experiences in life, but as the, as the phrase goes, and I love this phrase so much, we label things, people have names. Once we, hmm. once we learn a person's name, um, It becomes a lot more personal, obviously, but we're almost kind of confronted with their humanity. We no longer can dismiss them as this thing that drives us nuts, and instead we have to appreciate that, hey, maybe we have to give them a chance and get to know them a little bit, so...
1: I love that. I love also being able to like laugh at these stereotypes and, and recognize the ways that some of them point to realities that we share in common, but also to dig deep into the nuances of personal experience. Like it's just really fun. Yeah. Thanks for that.
0: Yeah. It's. I think it's important and necessary because especially as young pastors, we're going to get to some of your, a little more of your experience, especially as young pastors. I, I see us particularly as bridge builders because what do we have in our congregations? Stereotypically, and I'm going to use that word intentionally, stereotypically, we're going to have a little bit of the boomers and some of the more what I would refer to as seasoned saints. That's mm. that's the picture in the in the minds of most uh, of what churches look like. And that's, that's not just necessarily a picture. I mean, there's some research that kind of backs that up. Um, but in, in a way, we're almost bridge builders between generations because for me personally, I, I'm learning lesson after lesson of just what it means to engage cross-generationally and then sometimes cross-culturally in the generational divide. Um, and it's simple things like, you know, I shared a joke in a sermon and some of my seasoned saints had no idea what I was talking about, but all of the 40 and under crowd were busting a gut laughing about it. And I realized, hold on. <laughs> why did that not connect with some of these people and some, you know, it's, it's important for us to, to, to be aware of this stuff, but to not let it define how we interact with people, especially since we're in this kind of unique position to potentially be bridge builders. So absolutely. So given, given the unique position you're in, tell us how you got there, tell us about your education, tell us about how you got into ministry, um, and any other, you know, personal, how you became a pastor details you feel like merit sharing
1: yeah um like I said, I'm born and raised in california I grew up on a in a small town on the central coast It's called pismo beach um loved it super sleepy beach town I grew up in a Nazarene church and uh went to visit Point Loma for Nazarene preview days and just knew like why else would I? why would I not go there
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen Point Loma, it is literally on a beach. It, that's um, not an exaggeration it is on the beach <laughs>
1: um yeah uh so just fell in love with the campus and with um the professors the faculty just the the whole experience um so I went to Point Loma Nazarene University uh with a, a double major oh goodness this is gonna sound so nerdy oh my goodness um, I no, I I thought I wanted to be a teacher thought I wanted to be an English teacher So I double majored in literature and Spanish um, and then almost had a minor in women's studies. But I thought that's a little too much. And I wanted to be done in four years. So, Um, yeah.
0: But you got that done in four years still.
1: I did. Yes. Yeah. Uh, So so thought I wanted to be an English teacher. It's. um, Fall of senior year, I'm doing my like capstone requirements for my major doing like sample lesson plans and classroom observation hours. And like my whole cohort is getting ready to apply to teaching credential programs or um, getting ready to teach abroad or other kinds of things. And I just had this like huge freak out moment, just like there's no way I could go into career track high school teaching right now. I just totally flipped out about it. Um and looking back now, I think I overreacted <laughs> a lot. Um but also at the same time I really believe that it was it, that it was God kind of clarifying what I was actually called to do. So anyway, I talked to some Uh, professors and to some people who I trusted who could really speak into my life. And they said, we still see this gift for teaching in you. We think you'd be great working with adults. Like, have you considered college teaching? You'd have to go to grad school if you wanted to do that. And you'd have to, like, get your applications in and take the GRE and, like, get all this done before the 1st of December. And at this point, it's like October. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do. So... I thought about it. I prayed about it. And I just thought like, yeah, grad school, that makes sense. So I did some quick research, like found, found a place that like I thought would be a good fit for me that had some teaching opportunities and um, did like all the application stuff got accepted to San Jose state university for a master's in English and comparative literature. Um, So that's how I ended up in the Bay area from San Diego. And I thought I was just going to be there for grad school finish my ma and then be back in southern california doing teaching like having some sort of teaching gig um but i think that god had some other plans or was working some other things out for me so i landed in san jose and was um like just trying to make friends trying to build a community i was living in a house with with um a bunch of folks who weren't remotely religious at all. And I just really missed the Christian community I'd had at Point Loma. Um and so I landed at this like young, trendy church plant with a lot of millennials, a lot of <laughs> folks my age. <laughs> just be- because I like like not only was I looking for a church to plug into, but I I was really looking for friends. Um yeah. and so so that that like that made a lot of sense to me at the time. And um and I I mean, at this point, it was still like a like a Sunday evening service as part of a a larger church. But as I started going, they started talking about planting as their own church, and I was like, "Yeah, I I mean, I believe in this place. I believe in its vision. Um, I believe in the work that they're doing to awaken this generation to new life in Christ." And so I just like I was so caught up in the volunteering that I thought like, "Well, why not? (laughs) What else would I do?" Um, So so we did. I was part of like the church plant team and. All of this is happening while I'm finishing up my MA at San Jose State. And <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm also like teaching freshman writing, like just the, the, the gen ed entry level freshman writing sequence. And I loved it. I loved the teaching part. But what I really loved about it was like, these elements of discipleship and shepherding, I swear, like, once a week, I had a student in my office who was crying, like, just because (laughs) they were, they were homesick, or they didn't know what to do in the, like, university life, or, like, they just, I don't know, they recognized me, I think, as a safe person, and kind of sought me out, and and that was the best part of my job as, as a teacher, uh, getting to talk to students about what they were learning, and what was going on with them, and I realized, like, as I was one volunteering with this church plant and getting to do things I loved, like write and teach at church, um, alongside the teaching gig that I thought I had always wanted. But but it, it just really clarified some things for me that the things I had always loved about teaching were really about discipleship and shepherding, and that like I could devote my life to to teaching and shepherding at church. Like that was a thing that people did. Yeah. and it was called pastoring (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) imagine that novel idea
1: I know I know um so so that really happened like like I learned I learned all of that by doing I just kind of discerned my call by being in the mix um and and at that point I realized like oh yeah God is calling me to the ministry to like vocational work building up the church um and really it was it was the call to the ministry really came through discerning a call to preach and to teach and to disciple um, and i knew that to do that i needed like a robust theological education um, so just when i thought i was done with school oh, my I, went, Atlanta. I know i went back at it for a theological degree Um, So you're,
0: you're the reason we have a trillion dollars in debt, essentially. I know,
1: I know. Well, well, to be fair, my, my degree, my degree at Point Loma, yeah, like, like I, I took out quite a bit of student loans there, but I had scholarships all the way through that that really minimized that a bit. I was still, it still is a hefty amount of student loans. Um, and then my my program at San Jose State was basically free. So because I was teaching as part of my work there, for every class that I taught, they paid for. Um, six units of my own coursework as a grad student so I was able to make my way through without much student debt but yeah seminary has crushed me <laughs> with, <laughs> with student debt um yeah uh, so just when I thought I was done with school I finished up my my degree at San Jose State um and and then enrolled in Fuller Theological Seminary for a master's um in theology and I'm just about to be finished with that. It's my last, my last quarter. I will graduate in June. Oh, my Lanta! A, a master's in theology, uh, with an emphasis in theology and culture, as I happen. Well, look at that! I know.
0: Holy cow! Where theology, where faith and culture intersect. <laughs> it's like you were meant to be on the show.
1: Yeah, so to really just like have been have been formed through through education, um, like through really, really particular communities at Point Loma. Um while I while I was a student in San Diego as an undergrad, I I was part of um, a Nazarene church there, Southeast Church of the Nazarene, that was really like influential in my personal faith journey. Um a really diverse community uh in an underserved neighborhood, and and that really like formed my Imagination for what the church could be, and and um
0: was and then was that where Rhoda Heaver was at?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, Steve Rhoda Heaver, the pastor who's who's still there, was um yeah really influential in in helping me gain a theological imagination, and was a great like example of the pastor theologian. Like he was also a, a professor at. Uh, Point Loma as well. Um, So, so really like kind of modeled what it would look like to be like a robustly theological and pastoral presence in maybe a university setting and a local church setting. So that was really influential to me. And then like uh, moving to the Bay Area and kind of learning learning by doing that the academic sphere wasn't really where God was calling me to be. Although I felt like I could hang, it wasn't like <laughs> what I wanted to do. Like I had so much anxiety of about being stuck in this like ivory tower of academia. <laughs> like what was I actually doing in the world? And I, yeah. And um, well, but to and speak then-
0: to that, I think it's probably important. So I, I don't know if people are aware, even within, within our own churches, I mean in Nazarene churches, but also, in other Protestant or, or Catholic or Anglican circles, there are education requirements for pastors. That, mm-hmm. That's just how it is. You don't. For me, I would not be allowed to be a lead pastor without a degree. I mean, it's just not. It's not an option. This, so it's like you know, we the the stereotype once again is why are you going to all the student debt? Just get a job. Blah, blah blah blah. It's like I don't. I don't know if people understand the fact that there's not an option. You have to go to school to do some of these things
1: yes absolutely um and and also, our denomination has a really good balance between education and like concrete ministry experience. They hold those things together as they're evaluating and and um and affirming people who are who are called the pastor and preach so uh but yeah the the education is part of it, and for me it it had always been the place where I was best formed and shaped like in the classroom, so uh it, it not only was it required, but it made sense for me to to find a way to to make school make school work. And also I mean again, uh, as we sort of jumped back and forth in a bit a bit of my story as as I as I knew God was calling me to the ministry not only did school make sense, but the Church of the Nazarene made sense. It had always been my home and my family and I knew that if God was calling me to a life of vocational ministry, I wanted it to be, to be in the Church of the Nazarene, the place that had raised me, the place that had formed me, um, and, and the yeah, the, the place where I wanted to be.
0: So you so. so you went from kind of the big trendy millennial church to the uh, you said you're, you're serving a poor community, so maybe less yeah. less glamorous: uh, Oh, totally a little more nitty-gritty ministry totally. location.
1: My and my my first my first pastoral placement was as an associate pastor in a, a small church in in Palo Alto, and so that was like like a small step down from this. Like when I say like big trendy millennial church, I mean like like we had um, like an ex NFL player, like a, a a private chef, like a bunch of folks from Google and Apple and oh Facebook and all the Silicon Valley tech companies, like like it was it was trendy it was like (laughs) like and okay and so so then since we had this like like this guy who was a personal chef he had so many like restaurant connections and so he got like local craft coffee roasters to donate bulk beans to us he got like a local french bakery to donate pastries every week so it was like like you came to church and it was fancy it was was a spread it was yeah, it was a spread and and because somebody had great connections that they could leverage for generosity for for the church community, but they were like you visitors came and it was an experience, oh um, man <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so so that's a the the church that I serve now offers a very different kind of experience <laughs> um one one that I still think is really really valuable and important, but but on the surface, very different. So, I mean, now driving into the church where I serve in Hayward, you notice um, you notice bars on the windows, you notice chain link fences, you notice potholes in the road. You drive into a parking lot that's literally crumbling, um, and you and you walk in, and the first thing you see in the morning is uh, round folding tables, like spread out with um with folks having a meal. We have we have a meal for um for folks that's open to anyone, like an open soup kitchen before service. Um and you'll hear people speaking Spanish and Mandarin and English and um yeah just and also people just kind of eating in quiet because they need some quiet space to themselves. But like that meal that you walk into is very different <laughs> from the like <laughs> fancy croissants and local craft coffee. Oh man. Um, so it it just yeah, like has has been a a big a big change for me from like trendy millennial church plant which was the right thing for me in the right season. Like it was a place where I concretely heard God's call on my life and offered me an opportunity to serve and I'm so grateful for that space, but it was also a place of discernment for me to say like like okay, I don't think that this is what God is calling me to do and to kind of take some Steps that might seem like downward mobility to some, but like really made sense for, for my work and my calling.
0: Absolutely. Well then, so speaking of calling, let's get more into talking about the church. All right, Alicia. So given the difference between kind of your past experience um, and your current experience in church, and since this is the trend that we have on this show, I want you to, in your own words express your definition or your picture of what church looks like cuz it is kind of funny that you talk about the the hipster millennial big trendy church cuz sometimes like that's the image that some of us have in our minds or sometimes the image we have is this big cathedral and if we're really talking about this whole millennials being pastors faith and culture thing it's probably really important for us to to express what church is and maybe kind of uh i guess put a pin on what is it that over half of us have left. So, mm. what would you say church is?
1: Yeah, I I think for me, theologically, the church is a community that is created and called by God. Um, a community that bears the image of God when we are together. Uh, it is Christ-centered. I mean, like this isn't a group of folks who joined a book club like this is this is people people committed to following the example that's set forth in scripture uh centered around this person jesus christ um the church is spirit empowered that there that there is something supernatural that like binds us together again it's, it's not like this is a book club or some community basketball <laughs> league like this this isn't brunch club yo like the the church the church has this unique identity that's centered in who god is and who god calls god's people to be um and and a, a key part of that for me, like the language that I use all the time, is is about God's kingdom or the reign of God—a reign of light and love and peace and justice—that's um, expressed in in this space where we gather together in a radical countercultural way, uh, where we where we care for each other, where we share what we have with those who are in need, where we minister to the poor and to the needy, um, where we create a space for for a different way of being in the world and it's not just for our sake but it's for the sake of the world um i think sophie on your on your last podcast used this image of the body of christ Mm -hmm. In, in my community we we receive the sacrament of communion every week and every week i talk about the body of christ that's blessed broken and poured out for the sake of the world and that we too as the the community of god the people of god the church are Christ's body in the world, also blessed, broken, and poured out for the sake of the world. So I think, like, theologically speaking, that's what the church is. And the ways that those, like, local expressions look are really different, whether that's a cathedral or a trendy millennial church or, like, a small country parish. Like, those, those outer expressions are different, but the inner identity, like this colony of God's kingdom is the same.
0: Or, or you know, one of our uh, a couple episodes back, one of our guests, you have church where part of the biggest hurdle she has to overcome is that church happens at her house. And so mm. there's there's some some sort of weird, you know, litmus test, this yardstick, this legitimate that your church isn't legitimate unless sort of a mindset that I feel like so many of us young people in particular are kind of trying to, to confront in how we do church that you know it doesn't have to be um late it doesn't have to be completely and totally defined by the building but obviously the building is helpful because w- like you just said when we church when we do the church when we are the church uh it happens when we gather so we have to gather somewhere mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so so then follow up question to your definition of church let's let's hear why you haven't left because again part of this is confronting the stereotypes but also we have a unique voice in that many of our fellow millennials have peaced out.
1: Yeah, and it's so interesting to me. I like I've been a part of communities with um with folks who are doing some serious deconstructing work who who are wrestling with what it means to be the church, who have been hurt by the church, who um all of, all of these things. And, and the thing is, I see the same things that they see. Like, there, there are points in my life where I've been significantly hurt by the church, where I've seen the church fail to live into who I know that they're called to be. um, And, and yet it's never occurred to me to go anyplace else. Like, where else would I go? But <laughs> like, like this, I, I guess, I guess maybe this is millennial idealism in some senses but
0: <laughs> rose but colored I, goggles
1: but I I just so deeply believe in in the way that God God affects God's mission in the world by way of a people by calling a people together. Like when I look at scripture, I don't see any plan B like the plan is the church um, that God is at work in the world um, through this like counter-cultural gathered community. And I, I don't know, but I fell in love with God and that for me means I also fell in love with the church with all of her flaws and all of the ways that, that she is limping along in so many other ways. I still see this deep beauty in the church and, and who I know she can be.
0: Absolutely. So that's why you haven't left is that you, you see the potential or you see what God is trying to call us to.
1: Yes. Yes, totally. And also, I I mean, like I, yeah. And I, I also think that, that there's something to be said with like, like, settling in a community where you're uncomfortable like it just seems to me that the church is about so much more than like is the music to my taste or do they have fancy coffee or what or whatever <laughs> is, it pews? Like,
0: is it pews or is it padded <laughs> seats that's a big bit that I mean I have to have <laughs> those padded seats I don't want to sit in no pew <laughs> <laughs> it,
1: exactly and it just seems to me that like being church and doing church is about so much more than that so
0: Absolutely. So then, okay, next question would be, what do you love most about the church? Um, And this particularly, you know, this question is important, I think, because so much of what I think the established church hears from us particularly is what we don't like. Um, And what's ironic, or maybe not even, maybe that's not the right word. What's very intriguing to me about the things that we don't like is what you kind of already articulated or alluded to is, guess what? you and me probably have the same, same hang-ups about church as millennials that have left it like yes. you might have the same frustrations but but uh before we get to more specific frustrations or things we think might need fixing tell me what you love about the church
1: I think the easiest way to say it- what i love about the church is that people who don't seem to belong together they find out that they actually do belong together um by some sort of supernatural thing that's at work in them that we yeah talk about as god's spirit among us um and they belong together not just for their own sake not just to have like a like a huddle of people who connect with each other but it's for the sake of the whole world I don't know, but that sort of sounds like a superhero tagline, like for the X Men or something. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> like, you're people, a millennial, dude. You're a millennial. I know,
1: I know, I am. But, but, like, that's the thing: people who don't seem to belong together belong together, and it's for the sake of the world. I, I mean, I like what's not to love about that?
0: There's this purpose and mission, and there's this welcome invitation for all to be a part of the family of God.
1: Yes, yep,
0: couldn't okay. have said it better. All right. Well, good. I'm, I'm happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> so then let's get to what needs fixing. I I mean, you kind of alluded to, we've, we've talked about some of this a little bit, but give me some specifics. What do you think needs fixing?
1: Yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with colleagues recently about like what we've noticed to be, um, the lack of a really strong ecclesiology. I mean, okay, okay, maybe it's, Mm-hmm. Pause. I,
0: I didn't I didn't go to seminary and I know you have like <laughs> a million degrees so and if Byron were here he'd be echoing the same sentiment what in the world does ecclesiology mean
1: ecclesiology means the study of the church uh ecclesia is the greek word um found in the new testament to mean church or assembly the the ones who are called out like the gathered group of people so ecclesia to ecclesiology the the it's what we talk about when we talk about church
0: so kind of like how we church yeah Mm -hmm. yeah okay it's like
1: it's like how do church who is church?
0: <laughs> how does church?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, um, and and it's it's the it's the sort of thing that says, um, well, who is God? Who are we as God's people? And how then do we live in light of who God is and who we are as God's people? Like that that sort of stuff. What happens when we gather, and why?
0: Got it. Okay, so so robust ecclesiology, meaning a a thorough understanding of what it means to be the church.
1: Yes, yes. To be the church, and then to to do church.
0: Got it. Yeah,
1: I mean, basically, the conversations that we've just been having are really about ecclesiology. Like, what is the church? Why are you still a part of it? What do you love about it? Um, Yeah, and then and then also, what needs fixing? This is a, a deeply ecclesiological question um but i i guess one of the things that i've noticed in my particular context or at least in in this in these recent decades of evangelical life in in north america is that that we've got this big like church growth culture right where yeah where like we're concerned about like how many people are coming to our church and and there's this there's this big like like what's called the attractional model. So we want to attract people to come to church by throwing a big event, by having fancy coffee and fancy pastries. I feel like I'm Mm. picking on that, (laughs) but it's, it's like it's, it's low hanging fruit so to speak well and it's real it's
0: just it's real it is
1: is. like like do we have the right kinds of songs the right kind of lights the right kind of decor are we offering people fancy coffee and pastries and services to meet them where they are are we speaking to their felt needs so that Mm -hmm. people will come to church um and 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 then along with that is this like this the sense that the pastor needs to then be a CEO or an entrepreneur, like this kind of person who's like businessy minded and is like, and is like growing the church in these particular strategic ways. And it drives me bonkers. Like, like I, I, I just don't think that that's what the church is about. I don't think that's what pastors are called to do. Um, I think that, that we as like American evangelicals have kind of bought into that narrative that the pastor needs to be some like CEO to have this like business model for, for the Mm. church. And I'm not saying that we don't need like healthy and, um, and, and sound, um, financial practices or, or, or doing that sort of stuff. That's really important. But I'm saying that the pastor's job is, is something different. Um, when I when I was part of the like trendy millennial church plant, we went to a conference called the Catalyst Conference in Southern California. I don't know if you would have heard of it or we... I definitely
0: heard of it, but I don't think I ever went.
1: Yeah, I don't know if we could link in the in the show notes or anything, but it I I went a couple of times and I experienced it sort of like Jesus Disneyland, but in like a <laughs> but in like a, a a bad way. I mean, like oh, okay. like yeah. just sort of like super flashy and lights everywhere and like rock band sort of worship experiences and like super powerhouse like pastors of mega churches and it's meant to be this like really inspirational leadership conference and I mean sure it, it was inspirational in some ways but in some ways I felt this like deep dissonance inside my heart like I just said I, I just felt really deep inside of me this is not who I'm called to be and I don't mean that as a value judgment toward toward the other folks who who live and operate in that world but I just like couldn't articulate that like God was calling me to something different
0: um, and then
1: so so I came back from this catalyst conference and I and I was scrolling through the Twitter feed and and just kind of reflecting on the things that had been shared there and I came across this blog post um, that has since been taken down like I wish I could link to it because I came across this blog post that like spoke exactly what I was feeling inside of me and I copied out this quote on an index card and taped it to my desk and it's been taped to every desk that I've worked at since for the past like five years. Um, It goes like this. I want to attend a conference about being small, authentic, and missional at a church that is small, authentic, and missional. I want to read a book about overcoming the success syndrome by someone who in the eyes of the world looks like a failure. I want to hear from the pastor whose story didn't have a happy ending in terms of success and yet still clings to the fact that Jesus is enough.
0: Mm, that's that's kind of, so the conflict there is... Is it about the production model of church or the engagement of living communally?
1: Right. And I just long to see this like return to faithful parish minded, contemplative pastoring where uh-huh. the pa- where the pastor's job is to care for the people in their neighborhood, to be a chaplain in their place of work, to be a spiritual director when they're searching for what God is up to in their lives, to walk the streets of their community and get to know the neighbors like this is a, a, a pastor who's whose calling is to pray and to study and to teach and to be with the people. Not a pastor whose calling is to be the the CEO entrepreneur who's like building an empire.
0: Uh, yeah, and this is all coming. I mean, it's the end of the business year, which is, that's just how the church also functions. It's the end of the 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 business cycle we have elections we have end of year reporting we have to do and every year it's just probably the least favorite thing i can do as a pastor is try to use metrics to explain that because i i have you're giving me all the feels like yes those are all the things but currently in my district i'm gonna you know i'm gonna say they're they're doing a very good job at trying to address some of those things they know that you know for instance we have to report things like how many people became Christians? How many people did this? I mean, was like, I hate reducing a person's life and their story to a number. Yeah, it's the worst. It drives me. It like literally, it, it, it grieves my soul. It's the worst thing ever. But Yeah. Yeah, the, it's a shift. It's, it's an, I agree. It's an important shift that we need to make in just being pastors and being in the church. It, but you had a couple other things you're going to share too, because I know we have some specific conversations coming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things that's like driving me bonkers at the moment. And maybe it's like exacerbated by, like you said, like the end of your reporting and trying to find ways to like faithfully represent um, the ministry that's happening when mm. I feel like, like so frequently it gets reduced to just like numbers or tally marks. Um so so that that's one that's one of the things and like developing this understanding of church that is so much more deep and nuanced um and then and then part also I think uh, of that nuanced understanding of church then becomes like a theology of justice like recentering the work of justice and compassion is integral to the church's identity as like part of who we are and who we always have been I think the biggest like conspiracy theory uh, uh the biggest conspiracy or trickery is that like we've somehow bought into this idea that justice work belongs like outside of the church that like caring for the environment is some like hippie california (laughs) agenda
0: (laughs) when says the california girl too right? (laughs) i know
1: i know but but like the truth is that care for creation and for the land was the First and biggest responsibility given to humanity and we and we've and we've let ourselves be convinced that this is some like liberal california hippie agenda like this is this is bamboozle palooza this is like not yes that that drives me bonkers um
0: me too yeah yeah (laughs)
1: and then and then i think I think the, the the final thing that's been bubbling to the surface as I think about what does it mean to have a really strong ecclesiology or, or a strong understanding of the church is this like diversity and inclusion um, and representation. Like when, when we look at, at the way scripture points to God's mission in the world as being for like all peoples and then we look out from the pulpit on sunday and see the same kind of people i think mm-hmm. that's really problematic
0: mm-hmm. dude you're giving me all the feels <laughs> okay speaking of all the feels we're actually going to pause on on Alicia's story time for a second because we're going to try something out in this podcast i know we have like i have issues with So much of the things we're already sharing, but also just, I feel like a sellout having a sponsor. So we're going to (laughs) try, we're going to try something. Um, Last week, if you didn't listen, we had Sophie on the show and she gave a shout out plug to a company that's kind of doing that. And they're not doing that necessarily through the church. They're an actual company, but in some ways that's kind of a creative way for the church to do things like, you know, have a good theology of justice and, um, and be inclusive in those sorts of things and actually just care about what's (laughs) going on in the world. And so, the last episode, she gave a shout out, but we're going to give an official shout out. This is this is going to be our official share the love sponsor. That's what we're going to call it. Um, and it's justthreads.org. Um, just Threads was born from reimagining consumerism into a way of giving rather than just getting. So their whole spiel, their whole shtick, their whole mission is to to create an ethical clothing company and to actually you know channel money from their sales to support some of the world's greatest causes. In um, doing so. Th- this is on their website, everyone can be a part of the change for a better world of vendors, traders and consumers alike. So their whole thing is mission minded, but it also um, they're just a clothing company. They have stylish, uh, stylish clothing. At least I'm told I've never been accused of being stylish. So maybe (laughs) maybe don't trust me on that. Trust Sophie, maybe trust Alicia on that. Um, They're stylish. Awesome. They're stylish. And as kind of a uh, a sharing the love, sort of a promo. Since they are willing to be sponsors, they are actually going to give you a promo code for checkout. You can get twenty five percent off if you go and order online. They're a UK based company, but they'll ship to the United States. So if you go and at checkout put in the coupon code Millennial Pastor you're going to get 25% off, which is just super legit. I love that so much. I think that's so cool. We'll put their link in the description along with what you were sharing, Alicia. And we'll also put the the checkout code in our description as well. But we're going to try to do this more often just kind of share the love share things that you know, our stories of people doing things that we don't necessarily have time to to interview an hour for but you can just go and see the story and be a part of it. So that's the that's it. That's the other. I actually like sharing that sort of sponsorship stuff. So, go to JustForThreads.org. We're gonna have links everywhere for that. Use millennial pastor twenty five percent off at checkout. Sound cool? Check it out. <laughs> Check it out. Moving on. All right, business stuff done. We're gonna continue with Alicia's story. Specifically though, Alicia, I know we we talked about this, and I think there could be maybe an elephant in the room. Not for <laughs> not for me or you, but. If you guys didn't know, listeners out there, um, Alicia happens to be a woman. Ta-da! Ta-da! Part of <laughs> part of what you were just sharing, and I think this is important. First, this is maybe of a paramount importance. The best critique of a of a bad thing is the practice of something better. So it's one thing to say, you know, maybe we need to work on diversity, inclusion, um, representation. But how do we actually live that out in our denomination? Being a woman and being a pastor should not be a big deal. Yeah. But. But it is, and it's also a very divisive topic interdenominationally.
1: Mm, yep.
0: So, so speak to that. Not only are you a female pastor, you're a millennial. You also are single.
1: This is true.
0: This, this is, is true. This is like the trifecta of things.
1: I know. I know. I feel like like I'm pretty frequently triply different. Um, There was a season in my ministry life where I could guarantee – like, if I were a betting person, like, I could bet that if I were going to a professional event, I would be, one, the only woman, two, the youngest by about a decade – and three, the only one not married, uh, which Man. Is, yeah it is a very interesting experience and that that's beginning to change um yeah. as, as we talk more and more about diversity and inclusion and creating safe space and intentionality in getting more women and more young folks represented in in our like professional cohort of pastors but yeah it could it could be pretty rough
0: so then it must have been pretty life-giving to see in our cohort that you weren't the only one
1: oh yeah uh, yeah absolutely like our cohort in the mentoring for ministry program is a i think i think 50 50
0: yeah 50 50 male female
1: yeah yeah, yeah. I think so which i i think was was really intentional as well from from the folks who were who were organizing it um because, yeah, like, like you said, it shouldn't be a big deal in our denomination um, because the Church of the Nazarene has been ordaining women since 1908. So since before women had the right to vote, they were being ordained as <laughs> pastors in the Church of the Nazarene. And yet there's still like like only about 10% of lead pastors are women.
0: Um, Man. I mean, so, you know, part, of that, part of that is our reading of scripture, you know, in acts it says young men and women – will will pro- prophesy. They'll be a part of this church thing. And then it also talks about throughout the New Testament, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, we are all one in Christ. Like there's this new creation we take on the image of Christ, which means we don't play by the world's designations of who we should be anymore. Hmm. And so, but for me, this is an interesting thing because suddenly I feel like a good old boy, right? Because like <laughs> I can complain a lot about how I don't fit the typical idea picture of a pastor, right? I'm a young man yeah. and I don't wear a suit and tie and, you know, I wear a hoodie and a jeans and, you know, vans or whatever I'm walking around and someone's like, you're a pastor. Oh my goodness. I can only imagine, I can only imagine what it what it's like for you. I mean, do you have to? really reassure them like 17 times that you're actually a pastor (laughs) um
1: some sometimes um yeah uh I had a conference um last year I had I had like just been appointed at Hayward as the lead pastor there I was at a conference with other Nazarene people who have theoretically a, a strong understanding and support for women in ministry um and i was doing the like small talk intro that you do when you meet colleagues at a conference they're like oh who are you where where are you and i yeah i said i serve in the bay area i was just appointed at hayward um and then this person said oh who's the pastor there and i said (laughs) me (laughs) i am i like i I just told you i was appointed there and he was immediately apologetic and was like oh my gosh i'm so sorry right like recognizing that he made some assumptions but the but the truth is those assumptions are still there um which is which is really like even despite the best intentions there's there's a lot of those assumptions still like just worked into how we how we approach things one of the other places I've really seen those assumptions about what the typical or ideal pastor is um has been in my like applications for my district license so there are all of these questions of, about like that are meant to assess like the health of the of the pastor or the candidate um that like they're their practice in ministry and all these kinds of things. But there's language that's built into these questions that really reflects an assumption that a pastor is a married man with children.
0: Yep. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And just to clarify what she's talking about, district licensing, that's literally every year you have to renew this license just to be a pastor in the nazarene church so this is not just like a casual oh what is she talking about she's going to talk to people about stuff you have to do this i mean i guess you could call it hoops you have to jump through to be a pastor
1: yeah i mean it like like the the clergy are professionals just like anyone else so just like an architect has to renew their license or Mm -hmm. or any anyone else like clergy people are are part of a professional cohort. It's something that we have to do. But so for example, some of the questions were, were something along the lines of um like, how are you an example to your congregation in uh, your relationship uh, to your spouse and children? And I was like, um, <laughs> I, I don't have a spouse and I don't have children. But oh. I, and so, so I could have been snarky and like left the question blank and just refused to answer. But I said, like, I took some time to reinterpret it and say, I think what you're trying to ask is how is my, my integrity and my personal life, an example to my congregation. And so I said things like, I hope I'm example to I hope I'm an example to them in the way that I practice hospitality, in the way um, that I really respect Sabbath and rest, in the way that I am committed to justice. And so I hope that there are many ways that my personal life and my integrity in my home life is an example to my congregation. But you don't have to ask me about hypothetical spouse and children. Like you could just, <laughs> you could just ask me that.
0: Uh, but see, I mean, these are things that people might not even consider because like for me, you know, going through the district licensing process, my number one stress and focus was hopefully they actually give me this. Right. Like I wasn't even looking at, oh man, that's obviously geared to me. Like I am, I am the stereotype with one big exception. I'm a little too young, I guess. (laughs) That that was the thing that came up for me. That was the, oh, you're only how old and you want to be districtly licensed, yada, yada, yada. But so then day day to day, day to day, then you must have some interesting issues with that. I mean, if this is built into the polity of the church. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Um and and again I think our district has made some significant strides and and we're really like moving moving forward there but but yeah, it it, it is it's one of these things that's kind of like always part of my reality. It's kind of like I don't I don't know um how how to put it best. Like, okay, you know the appliances in your kitchen. I mean, some of us still have stoves or refrigerators, <laughs> even though we're I don't millennials. Know. I don't know. <laughs> but you know those like appliances in your kitchen that kind of like make sound a little bit and and it's just part of this white noise, this like background noise that you can kind of tune out most of the time. You kind of forget it's there. Um, until like every once in a while it seems really loud to you, like it sort of like catches your attention. Um, and I feel like that's a a really good way to talk about the patriarchy like it just yeah. it's just a sort of constant background noise that I've for the most part learned to tune out and and until there's some of those really jarring moments where you come face to face with these assumptions or this kind of sexism that's built into the system and and then suddenly you're paying attention to it if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. So then that, uh, obvi- I mean, that leads me to the the natural next question for me. You had, you said you had numerous languages and I know you yeah. and I have talked. Um, your church is made up of different language groups and each of those has a pastor, right?
1: Yeah. So, so Hayward um, is a really unique church where we have several congregations all incorporated in the church of the Nazarene. Um. So, so several separately incorporated churches worshiping in the same building. So I pastor the English-speaking congregation, although almost everyone, like the vast majority of my congregation speaks English as a second language. Um, I received a card for Christmas signed in four languages. Uh, that's the, Those are my people. Um, so that's awesome. that's the congregation that I pastor in addition to the other congregations that are different language groups meeting in our space. So there's the Samoan Church of the Nazarene, there is Jyoti Fellowship, which is a Hindi language Church of the Nazarene. And then there's Mana de Cielo, which is a Spanish-speaking Church of the Nazarene.
0: So you have then, if math math is not my you know, <laughs> strong suit, uh, you have three other pastors that kind of use the same building as you.
1: Yes, and they are all uh, twice my age. Yeah, and they're
0: they're male yes
1: yeah and they're and they are all immigrants they were all like born and lived and ministered in a different country and then moved to the united states and have planted churches and are ministering here um so it's it's some significant cross-cultural work just like like language barriers um different uh cultural upbringing um and then also like it's it's not just cross-cultural work but it's energetic generational work
0: man um, so Com- compounded by the fact that i guess i would assume most of them patriarchal male kind of driven. deeply
1: deeply yeah so yeah. then
0: here's this young <laughs> millennial white girl it's like what's up i'm the english-speaking pastor yeah. i mean it was oh that gosh. kind of like a, a shock was that yeah a-
1: oh my gosh it took them it took them months to um remember <laughs> my name because all white girls look alike <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true um and oh you're
0: uh, oh you're the pastor oh i thought you were just another neighborhood white girl
1: yeah yep (laughs) yeah the the, like are you lost (laughs)
0: that is that is seriously hilarious but sad all at once
1: and and it just it took me months of pounding the pavement to even get like everybody in the same room together there there were other factors at play as well like there the church had been through some serious transitions and had several interim pastors before i was appointed so so in their minds not only am i maybe just like some random neighborhood white girl (laughs) uh also they're like is this girl gonna stick around like oh, because that's... the previous interim pastors hadn't been there so there were some other factors okay at play. um yeah but
0: given a but... benefit of a doubt i get it okay yeah
1: but but definitely like like the there i feel like in every one of those interactions there's this sort of plus and minus points situation that's going on because all of those pastors like really respect Uh, the office of pastor right like they respect the position Um, and I and I have some plus points in their mind of being like connected to the district authorities uh, of having an education credibility of of being English speaking like some of those things kind of give me plus points when I'm in the room but then there are minus points for being a woman being young Um, because not only are these like very patriarchal cultures but a lot of them are kind of very honor shame kind of cultures where, where elders really deserve respect and yeah and all of that and you need Um, to
0: earn that with just being on the planet longer
1: yeah yes yes and then and then also in again in some of those cultures there's just like like automatic deference shown to to elders that's like that can never really be superseded Mm. by merit or by like hustling or earning respect if that makes sense (laughs)
0: it just is it just just is is.
1: yeah um yeah Uh, and so, so navigating those power dynamics has been really interesting. Um, yeah. And i trying, yeah. Trying to find ways to, to move from some hierarchical relationships into um, into like collaborative and cooperative space. Um, yeah. It's, it's so interesting.
0: That's the, crazy.
1: Yeah. The, the Samoan, the Samoan, uh, pastor and his wife who are who are very much co-pastors although it's very clear like he's the pastor and she's the support which is interesting but but they're kind of like deeply in ministry together um but every time they see me they tell me that they're praying for my husband (laughs) because (laughs) because apparently I need some help but I want to (laughs) say I want to say like maybe you could just pray for an admin I mean that would be great I would
0: love an admin assistant yeah yeah
1: or a summer intern or something like um yeah and and they they mean well uh, absolutely and and it comes from this like really sweet heart but but it also reflects this like benign sexism right that like a woman alone isn't enough that like that i need some sort of spouse (laughs) yeah partnership situation
0: there's obviously something missing right i mean yeah there's some deep character flaw or something that we're gonna pray for for Alicia, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, or that that like, oh, like you're doing a really good job, but but if you, this is but this if, is if you is how only, to
0: really take it to the next level, yeah, but if you only
1: had a spouse, so oh, man. yeah, yeah, so yeah, we that's one of those things again. We we might call benign or benevolent sexism. But, so something like a like a benign tumor isn't gonna kill you overnight the way like maybe a malignant tumor would, but it's still not healthy it's not ideal or or, or ideal um yeah
0: okay so i mean this is a subject that merits discussion right and this is going to be one of our longer podcasts and people are just going to have to be okay with that (laughs) but in the spirit of not sounding like and part of this i you know i've had conversations with people that listen to the show and in person and millennials get a bad rap for just pointing out flaws and saying that's wrong stop doing that so Hmm. shifting gears tell me what are you doing about it Right. So aside from just being in existence, right, you exist, you are a woman, you're a pastor, you're single, and you're doing ministry, right? You are a lead pastor. So that's, that's something that I think maybe we don't give enough credit to all on its own. The fact that you exist. I mean, what are some other things that you're doing to maybe not just say, Oh, i I hate your ma- you know the stereotype I hate you just because you're a man right like that's that's just the stereotype right, but what are things that that you could share with our listeners that are kind of things that you're doing to maybe address the issues you see and are experiencing
1: yeah, totally what I mean one of those things things thanks for recognizing that i exist i can't tell <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people people have said uh well, i don't believe in lady preachers <laughs> Well, here I am. Oh
0: my goodness! What does that oh. make
1: me? Some like mythical unicorn? Like yeah, okay. it's like
0: I don't believe in gravity, right? Yeah, or, I'm like well,
1: know. no, we're here. I, like it's it's different if if you if you want to have like a. Uh, A conversation interpreting some difficult biblical passages and that's fine like I'm happy to have those conversations and to offer a different way of reading (laughs) so like you're a
0: figment of my imagination though Alicia
1: (laughs) I know I know I'm a ghost
0: (laughs) oh my goodness so yeah different than saying is this appropriate theologically
1: right 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 and and so so i do i do my best to respond with grace and to and to offer a different way of looking at and reading some of those passages that that uh, that kind of contribute to that understanding of of the we don't believe in women in ministry situation um but but then also just the fact that I exist is important. And so I find myself showing up to spaces that, I mean, if it were up to me and, like, what I would like to do, uh, I would stay home. Like, I don't want to sit in a room full of, like, old white guys and, like, have to consistently, <laughs> like, have to consistently be be the voice that's, like, like speaking about how, like, my community that's full of people of color will receive these like this thing or this initiative
0: or or program,
1: right. Or, or speaking about like, like from the woman's experience, like, I don't want to show up and be the token woman. I kind of hate that. Um, But if I don't say yes to that opportunity or find a way to bring somebody else along or to get them to include somebody else, then there won't be that perspective in the room. So even though like, I might not want to go to that committee meeting or like sit up, sit on that panel or, or go to that, that work thing because it might be uncomfortable for me. Like I show up because mm-hmm. just my existence is transformative.
0: And just being in the I know you you've told me that when you're not preaching, but just the fact that you are that's yeah. that's an adjustment for people right there. Right,
1: right. Which would so my first year preaching I did like like very little to change anything around the life of the church, just because me being there was so different from anything that they'd seen before. <laughs> but but also, like, as part of that intentionality, every time I needed to miss a Sunday, whether I was gone for a conference or on vacation or something like that, I intentionally invited another woman to come and preach. Um, one, because I want to be able to offer my pulpit to people who don't have the opportunity to preach as often, and most of those folks on my district are women. Women. Men in associate roles who yeah. like who aren't often given the opportunity uh to to preach sometimes from their own pulpits um but just like need some time and space and experience because again like as as we're pursuing ordination and doing this like licensing stuff a key part of that is like what's your preaching experience how many yeah. times did you preach in the last year and if you and if you have like uh, a if if you're in a a ministry placement that doesn't Offer you those opportunities, where else are you going to get them?
0: Yeah, that's so, just, it's a requirement, but if they're not given the opportunity.
1: Yes. So, so it really like was intentional about making sure that every time like I had the opportunity to offer my pulpit, I could offer it to somebody who needed it or needed that experience or opportunity. Um, and uh, I'll tell a really funny story. So, um, in August, I, I was gone for a camping trip and I had asked a, a friend of mine, uh, another woman who is in ministry, but not in a preaching role uh, to, to come and to preach. And she had a family thing come up and couldn't come at the last minute. And so I was like, oh, shoot, who, who could come and preach? Or do I have to cancel this trip I've been really looking forward to? And so I like asked around, and and there's um there's a a pastor friend of mine who's recently retired, uh, an old white guy, sweet and kind and available, who agreed to like come and preach at the last at the last minute. But I came back the next week, and one of the like women who's a core volunteer in in my church who helps run the food pantry, she's like. Like an opinionated, thoughtful, funny, African-American woman. Um, And I like came back after this camping trip and she made a beeline to me after service. And she said, girl, I must have missed that you were going to be gone because this old white guy got up. And I was like, (laughs) who are you? Like, who is that?
0: (laughs) That That's funny.
1: Which, yeah, it is. It's super funny. It's it's just so funny that like, like after really consistently showing up, like their, their perceptions had begun to change. Right. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I, I guarantee that that was their first response to me. Like, who is this girl? Exactly. Um, and, and so, and then to, to just keep showing up changes the perception. It changes the imagination of like what it means to be a pastor. Hey. And
0: what's what's ironic for me is you're not the first one to do this. Like you said, yeah. we've been ordaining women since 1908.
1: And you know what's so funny? My church was founded by a woman. I read this in the in the archives. The Hayward First Church of the Nazarene was planted in 1946 by Reverend Bertha Jones.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Hopefully and... I'm, I'm related to her. That'd be real cool.
1: <laughs> but, I, but I don't think that the church has had a woman pastoring since, which is crazy. Like, that's nuts. Hmm
0: that is kind of crazy
1: anyway that that really like <laughs> like fuels fuels my passion to be to be committed to like representation um yeah. so I'll I'll tell one more story. Uh we we had a group of teens from our district like a a collection a coalition I guess like of youth groups send some teens to do a service project at my church like clearing out closets and painting rooms and and just like general church beautification stuff which was so great, so helpful. And I was talking to some of these like these uh high school girls and one of uh, one or two of them is expressing like a call to ministry and I was like that's Awesome, and tell me more about that. And so she's telling me about how she has been telling her friends, um, like that she wants to go to a school like Point Loma uh, because she wants to be a pastor. And her friends are like, "Wait, what? Women can be pastors?" And this high school student says, "Yeah, I know seven women who are pastors." And I'm like, "Yes, because you were I one.
0: Mean, you are one of those seven, right?" I
1: well, I was, but also, I mean, when I think back to my high school experience, I knew I knew women who were in ministry. I knew women who were missionaries. I knew women who volunteered and were like like thoughtful, dedicated, kind um leg leaders, but I didn't know any women pastors when when I was their age. And Man. so and so to think about the ways that the representation has changed somebody's somebody's imagination is crazy. Cause because I grew up I grew up with people who were really encouraging of me and my gifts, but outside the church. Not that, not that anybody told me I couldn't serve in the church. Um, like I, my kid brother is only like a little more than a year younger than me. Like, so we grew up like really side by side in Sunday school and youth group on all these things. And I remember like people at church, Telling him, like, I bet you could be a pastor someday. And I remember people telling me, like, you could probably marry a pastor. Like, I bet, <laughs> I bet you'd be, I bet you'll be a pastor's wife. It'd be and so I was like,
0: good at being married to a pastor, Alicia. <laughs> and,
1: and I thought, like, well, then maybe I'm just called to be a pastor, but it took me a long time to get there to like mm-hmm. have my imagination widen to think like, oh yeah, I could do that too. Well, right. And just because I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody who was doing that.
0: I have a daughter and I, I can only hope that, you know, in a couple years when she's old enough, she can say she knows like 14 women pastors. Right. Or right. You know, that right. these stories then kind of change the the narrative, the the framework that we see some of this stuff with Because that I, I often wonder that, you know, I'm a male. I am the stereotype as far w- with everything except for age, you know, mm-hmm. but but I obviously deeply care about this stuff, because what if one day God calls my daughter to become a pastor? um and trust me if if god did that she would be epic she's like the most strong-willed hard hard hard-nosed leader and so she might be perfectly suited to to do almost a similar thing you're doing it's like oh you're not used to women pastors i'll help with that
1: (laughs) right she she might
0: be perfect for that but at the same time i mean the story the 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 people going before her are going to help pave that path you know
1: yeah so so it starts with representation just like showing up and then and that means like making sure that that women from your congregation are put forward as nominees for the board or or identifying identifying women who could step up and lead a ministry maybe somebody is already like volunteering so much of their time but she would never ask for the leadership opportunity herself like encouraging women to step into those places of leadership and then also making sure like on hiring committees and when you're when you're doing interviews that there are like qualified women represented there because our studies show that like more women are graduating with theological degrees from undergraduate institutions more women are graduating from seminary than men but still are candidate pools for pastoral jobs and placements are overwhelmingly male. And we have to change that. It's not that there aren't qualified women out there. It's that we're like, like there's, there's some sort of disconnect between the the education pool and then the job pool. And we have to be better about that representation.
0: So you exist. That's what you're doing. I mean, what, <laughs> what are, what are other things you're doing to maybe help? Because some of that sounds like maybe there are there is training there's you know education women are going to school for this stuff but but perhaps there's those congregations out that that they're gonna pick me over you right
1: yes yeah and and so a a lot of that work then come comes um in the day to day stuff so Right. Like, Josiah, you can't be a woman in the pulpit, but you could invite women into the pulpit as well to help give your congregation an imagination for what a woman pastor is like. Um, I think also we can we can be really diligent about using um, like gender neutral language for God and and making sure that we're like speaking into the into the like breadth of God's story. Um, Because there are like feminine Feminine language used for for metaphors to talk about God um throughout the scriptures but but we when we settle on on an imagery for God that's exclusively male or if we're only ever praying to God the Father, then it limits our imagination for who God is and what what God looks like when God comes to us right um
0: especially so, since God is not um, contained within gender. Exactly.
1: Right, right. right. But I think so many times we kind of default to a male-centered language, which unintentionally kind of inhibits what we think about when we think about, like, who could be a pastor. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense?
0: Absolutely, Um, because... Obviously the, the scripture speaks to God being fatherly but also speaks to God being motherly as well like exactly
1: saying. exactly and then and then uh, I mean we we don't talk enough about this, but like like the language used for God's spirit like Ruach in the Old Testament that's Hebrew or yeah. Numa in the New Testament that's Greek are Thanks. are both are both feminine. Like mm-hmm. they're, they, 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 or or there's um like holy wisdom, the figure of holy wisdom that's seen in the proverbs and in the prophets, and and that's Sophia, this like this feminine imagery, and and I I just don't think that we do enough justice to the to the ways um God isn't confined to gender. Man, um,
0: maybe I should go to seminary and learn these fancy words.
1: Or <laughs> I'll send you a glossary. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um but so so i think it starts with representation not just with like bringing people to the pulpit and having women sit on our committees and those kinds of things but it starts representation in our language and in telling the stories like how often do we tell the story of abraham isaac and jacob and forget sarah and rebecca and rachel and leah like yeah. like they're there's st- or how many times do we talk about like the incarnation? God come to us as one of us in Jesus Christ, and forget to tell the story of Mary? Yep. Like, like there, there's a, there's a lot of ways we can be better about making sure our picture about God's work in the world is, is this like diverse and whole story?
0: Does that make I, sense? Absolutely. But then to take that, so I'm, I assume you do that. I, assume.
1: I, I hope so. I try yeah. really hard. I try really hard.
0: And I know there's others out there like like you doing that that aren't just female, but they're, you know, male that, that use the gender inclusive language. But going forward, I know that you, you have some projects you're a part of as well. There's kind of, I mean, this is like the the passion of your ministry, I would totally. say. Totally.
1: Totally, yeah, yeah. Mostly because I like looked around and said, like, I have stuff to say about that, and I don't really see anyone else who's like saying or doing some of the same things. So just trying to show up and be faithful in my own context. So, um, one of the things we're working on right now at Hayward is, um, that we're we're a poor community. We don't have like a ton of financial resources, um, but we do have this house, this parsonage, that has four bedrooms, and we're remodeling it at the moment. It had fallen into some disrepair, but that we're uh, with the help of generous um, volunteers and donors. Like we're we're fixing up this parsonage so that we can house not just me as one pastor, right? Like I'm I'm a single person. Like we've already said, I don't need a four bedroom <laughs> house. Uh, and and so if if that were if that were really the only question, I would have really pushed to sell the house and to move into something smaller, more simple. Um, but we we had this idea of what if the house wasn't just for me? One of the biggest barriers to to Serving in the Bay Area is um, housing. So, what if this could be a resource for multiple ministers doing multiple kinds of work, work and ministry in the Bay? Um, so, it's not just one house for one pastor, but one house for several pastors doing several, several different kinds of work. And what if we were we were committed to bringing that representation of women clergy up, and we committed to our next few hires being women so that we could begin to balance out this this um disparity between male colleagues and female colleagues and so we came up with this idea of of having a house for women clergy we're calling it sister house uh, just i don't know it's an affectionate nickname that's um, or awesome. the or the hayward mission of recruiting women clergy to come and learn in a collegial collaborative environment live in an intentional community serve in a multicultural context have this like clergy development program
0: Man, I, I this is gonna be this is gonna be the thing I apologize for next episode. So, just fold, be prepared. All I keep coming and it's just that I have to bring levity to stuff. Sister Act references abound right now, like with your absolutely. Sister, <laughs> I, I just keep coming up with Whoopi Goldberg Sister Act lines and stuff for that. I'm, anyway, sorry, I that this is real and serious and important, and I can't I can't help it. There's something wrong with me. I always just have to like find the humor in something. But so Sister House, so is that gonna be for? for just nazarene or is that going to be like any
1: we're we're really open to to any like young women ministers who would want to come and participate in us obviously like our network is within the church of the nazarene and we we could help specifically people who are navigating the ordination process within the church of the nazarene so so we recognize that like we're kind of specifically nazarene but not exclusively nazarene if that makes sense
0: uh, absolutely and then I'm sure that's going to lead to other things that you're going to find out i mean there's there's more work that could be done with i mean that's kind of the representation thing right and like the yeah the, the sharing it so i know there's there's other things down the road for you as well right
1: um yeah i mean that's like that's a place that's a place to start um and and hopefully like the more we gather women clergy together and and collaborate, kind of model a collaborative vision for leadership and for church revitalization and, and these things that, that we're hoping for, the more we can hear some of the concerns of women clergy. And we recognize that because of their unique experiences and the assumptions and barriers that they often have to face, that there's some maybe specific training that they need. Um, so doing some work to pay attention to what they need and, and respond to that. And I I mean I I think that there's going to be some significant work that comes from um identifying things like like a a healthy policy for parental leave there's somebody in my cohort who's set to be or ordained with me um oh yeah from a different district but who's been in ministry for more than a decade but has never been ordained because she had children and had to take a break from ministry assignment um, mm-hmm. to to spend time at home with her children like she didn't have to but like that was like that was her that was her choice but then it negatively affected her in, in the fact that it showed that she was unassigned for a year um so she had to start her licensing process over for uh for ordination. Um, And this, this is a burden that, that our women clergy carry that our men clergy don't um and and then it it doesn't just affect things like qualifying for ordination but it affects things like qualifying for sabbatical a sabbatical happens when you've spent seven years consecutively in one full place time. yeah full time yeah so what happens if you uh are going to be primarily at home with a child for a year and then and then disqualified. it disqualified, it disqualified right exactly and again this is this is a burden that falls on our oh. women clergy, not on our, on our men clergy so so much. Um, and so this is a justice issue, I think, for, for women clergy. If the Church of the Nazarene, excuse me, because the Church of the Nazarene says that we support women and we care about women clergy, um, then we need to start with, with labor equity and pay equity, like in responding to some of these barriers that really specifically women
0: face. Man, if we're not careful, this is going to be a three-hour podcast. So I think <laughs> I think what the, here's I think we need to do a final takeaway because this is like you have me thinking about so many things, just all the things. I think about my daughter. I also think about other fun things. Like I have a unique situation where you know it's it's a uh, I am I am appreciating so much what my mother did for me because I stay home with my children. Yes. I am I am on the opposite end of the spectrum where I take all my kids grocery shopping and they. You know, the clerk's like, where's their mother? I'm like, well, she's at work. I'm taking care of them. And there's all these things that maybe the final thing that I would ask you, um, you know, from your experience, no, knowing that you get to deal with the majority, right? You get to deal with the mainstream, the, the you know, 50-year-old white pastor, right? You get to the male pastor. You, you know that that's the norm. That's the thing that's happening right now what would you say as kind of a final thought of maybe what is a simple shift? Cause maybe, maybe there's some of our listeners like a sister house. That's weird. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, a pay equality. That's, that's what, what would be your final thought that would be just a glimmer of hope to say, you know what, if we can get here, that's something, you know, you, you said it, you said it already. Maybe, and maybe this could be it. I don't know. Um, you said when you were in high school, you didn't really know any female lead pastors. This teenage girl said she knows seven that 's huge what What was the final thought you could leave our listeners to maybe just help shift um, maybe just language, maybe it 's perspective to to appreciate, understand, maybe acknowledge your existence better. <laughs>
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. No pressure.
0: No um, pressure. You just got to get it right perfectly.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, um, like, this has to start in community and start in relationship.
0: So, so
1: to our listeners who are, maybe, who are maybe other fellow pastors, I would say, uh, think about the, the pastors that you know. How many of them are women? How many of them are people of color? And if that number feels really low to you, maybe think about trying to make some new friends. See if you can make a friend who is a woman in ministry. Maybe she's not in your denomination. Um check the phone book. I don't I don't really know.
0: Love it. That's per that's brilliant. You reminded me of one of my one of my mentors in the last ministry assignment I had was a sixty year old woman um who had been kind of a pioneer, uh, obviously because when she started becoming a pastor, even though that was according to our polity, perfectly acceptable, had nothing but headache after headache she had to deal with. And she just knowing her enriched my life even more. So I think that's a brilliant place to leave it. Right.
1: So like make, make a friend. I would also, I would also say like, think about the mentors in your own life. Like who maybe are there women who have been influential for you, who you could write a note of thanks to say, thank you for the work that you did. It was impactful for me. Um, after looking at your community, I would say look at your reading list. How many women are you reading? How many oh. how many women's voices are speaking into your your sermon prep or or your or your work or, or preparation in some kind of way? And if that number feels really low, then see if you can add some women's voices into into that space. And um, and and <laughs> and lastly I would say um, pay attention to the women in your churches who are serving faithfully who are maybe quiet behind the scenes leaders and give them a, a, give them um, some appreciation or some thanks ask them what God is calling them to do you never know maybe God is calling them to pastor show up and be be, um, be a spiritual director in that space to listen to what God might be calling them to do
0: or, or be a cheerleader I mean, man yeah awesome well well alicia this has been great i really appreciate your willingness to share your story and to give us some uh theological imagination
1: yeah thanks so much for having me josiah thanks for letting me talk about something i'm really passionate about um it's been
0: so fun for sure and for our listeners if you want to hear more um she's going to share probably even more in depth her calling, her location, um, her vocation, her, her context, and also some of the future projects she's working on on our blog. You can find that at themillennialpastor.com. You can find us on social media, find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast. And if you really feel like it, um, you can review it and rate it. That would be swell. Um, But as always, if you want to hear more about what us millennials think, both boys and girls or you like hearing about the faith-based work that we're doing in culture then please join us next time on the millennial pastor podcast i'm your host josiah until next time thanks for listening